This is the Pendulum Land Podcast. Welcome infrastructure junkies to our show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Pendulum Land Podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. Today, we have some very special guests who are going to return to the Pendulum Land podcast to finish their story. You'll recall that eminent domain super lawyers from Seattle, Matt Hansen and Tara O'Hanlon, joined us a while back to tell us about how they tried not one, but two jury trials during the pandemic. One was socially distanced, and the other was entirely via Zoom. Now, They're back today with us to examine the matter at issue in one of their trials. It happens to be the one uh, that they tried totally via Zoom, and that issue is the value of restrictive covenants. This is something that's frequently overlooked, and if it's overlooked, it can be an expensive headache. Like you can buy yourself some inverses? A bunch of inverses. Yikes. Yes, but hold on, Kristen. What? But first... We have something even more important for our listeners than infrastructure and eminent domain. What could be more important than infrastructure and eminent domain, Dave? I'll tell you what. This is the first ever Billy Squire birthday celebration episode. Uh, n- no, no. I, I did not agree to this. It doesn't matter whether you agreed. His birthday's coming up on May 12th, and he'll be 71 years old this year, Kristen. That is a lot of stroking. Dave, literally no one cares. And I do not support this decision at all. First of all, don't argue with me, Kristen. Second of all, literally, literally everybody, everybody in the whole world cares about Billy Squire's upcoming birthday. I think you're, I think you're off. Can I ask you a question about Billy Squire? Sure. I'm an expert. I, I, I know that. Um, what is, why is he so, why does he keep talking about stroking? What does that even mean? Does he have like an ego problem and we need to stroke his ego? I'm not really sure. I think maybe he just has a big cat that he wants you to pet. It's like, it's like stroke his cat. Yeah. Or maybe he's a golfer and he's talking about how many strokes it took him to get the ball in the hole. Or it could be, this is a song about swimming and it's the backstroke. Stroke. Maybe. You know, are we sure he's saying st- stroke? It could be stoke. Like Stoke the Fire? Yeah. Actually, when I was 13 years old, I sung that song as strumming, strumming. That's, you know, that's kind of more charming. I think you're onto something with the pet cat, and it's about stroking his pet cat. Stroke my pet cat. Meow. Meow. Uh, okay. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, meow. Matt Hansen is the leader of Miller Nash Graham and Dunn's condemnation and real estate valuation team and is a member of the firm's real estate litigation practice team. In connection with his active condemnation practice, Matt advises and represents both municipal agencies and property owners regarding substantive and procedural eminent domain law. In addition to his significant experience in condemnation law, Matt is also an active real estate litigator representing and counseling clients in all aspects of real property litigation, 
commercial litigation, and commercial landlord-tenant law, including lease negotiations, disputes, workouts, and unlawful detainer actions. Now, Tara O'Hanlon is Matt's partner at Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn in Seattle, and she's a member of the firm's construction, condemnation, real estate, and litigation teams. She's a graduate of Georgetown University Law Center, which is a great law school, and she focuses her practice on construction litigation, contract drafting and negotiation, and condemnation. She has tried numerous multi-week trials and has extensive experience preparing and arguing motions for summary judgment, arbitrating claims, and successfully mediating complex multi-party cases. We are so lucky to have them back with us here today. Now, you know, Kristen, I think, I mean, we're, we're going to be talking about a complex jury trial like I just discussed, and Tara gave the opening statement in that trial. I think there's no better way than to give our listeners the background of what we're talking about today than to ask Tara to recreate her opening statement. This could be very dramatic and exciting. It could be very dramatic. Now, I understand she had to pare it down a little bit for today's show, but I think she's ready to give it for us. Do we need like a law and order sound effect? Dun, dun. Or at least a drum roll or, I don't know, fife and drum? What? Maybe we should just let her hit it. Okay. All right. Tara, when you're ready, hit it. Ladies and gentlemen at the jury, my name is Tara O'Hanlon, and along with my partner, Matt Hansen, we represent the Regional Transit Agency in Washington State. This is a uh, 100% Zoom trial, and while we occasionally have to try these cases, the Zoom environment is completely new for us too. And we know that communication is everything. You're going to hear a lot from us, and most importantly from the witnesses, and we're going to do our best to communicate effectively with you. So let's dig in. This is an eminent domain or condemnation case, as you heard in Voidir. Under the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and the Washington Constitution, the government may not take private property for a public use without first paying just compensation. The transit agency must build its light rail project. In order to build the light rail, it has to acquire property rights along the route. Now, property rights come in different forms. In some instances, the agency has to acquire people's entire property and their homes. But that's not what this case is about. The property rights at issue here are a different kind of property right. This case involves 29 owners in a neighborhood in Bellevue, Washington, that has covenants, or CCNRs for short. CCNRs restrict the use of properties. In this case, they restrict the use of properties in the neighborhood to residential use. Now the agency has already acquired other properties in the neighborhood. And as a result, it needed to amend the CCNRs to build and operate the project, which will run along the edge of the neighborhood. Now this neighborhood is next to the urban core of downtown Bellevue and is bordered by several busy streets. There are four subdivisions in this neighborhood and two subdivisions at issue in this case. And that's important because each subdivision has its own CCNRs. And what's key is that each, only, each owner only has a right to enforce the CCNRs within their specific subdivision. There are condominium properties where the actual light rail station is being built, and those are not a part of the CCNRs. 
You're going to hear that the CCNRs have already been amended in the past to allow non-residential use on the edge of the neighborhood. This case is about the amount of just compensation that the agency must pay to the owners for having amended the CCNRs. I want to be clear what this case is not about. The agency and its project are not touching the four corners of any of the owner's properties. The only property right at issue in this case is the right for the agency to file a legal document with the county recorder's office that amends the CCNRs. And in fact, it's already done so. And that legal document formalized the agency's right to construct and operate the light rail on the edge of the neighborhood but otherwise leaves the CCNRs in place. And that's why we're here. Now, to be clear, the owners did nothing wrong, but neither did the agency. We are here because we have a very significant disagreement about the just compensation that the agency must pay for having amended the CCNRs. And that's why you're here. We need your help. The parties are asking you and have entrusted you to make that determination based on the evidence you hear, the evidence you don't hear at trial. You will hear that the agency's appraisers value the impact from having amended the CCNRs at minimal to no impact, and that the value of these owners' properties did not go down. In fact, you will hear evidence that the value of their homes has gone up, and as a direct result of the agency's light rail project and the benefit of living just a short walk from a light rail station, giving you quick access to downtown Seattle, the stadiums, the airport, and across the region. But despite the minimal to no impact on the value of their properties, the agency has a minimum offer policy and has concluded that these owners should be given $1,000 each. So why are we here over $1,000? Well, on the other hand, the owners you will hear are individually claiming that the impact of having amended the CCNRs is worth hundreds of thousands, 200, 300, even $400,000 each. Again, there's no direct taking of their property. But as you will hear, just compensation means the fair market value of the property rights being acquired. It's not what the agency wants to pay, it's not what the owners want to be paid, it's fair market value. Well, what is that? It's what a hypothetical, knowledgeable and willing buyer and a hypothetical, knowledgeable and willing seller in the market would agree on as the value for each of the owner's properties. And you will hear that markets are made up of lots of hypothetical buyers and sellers. It's not about these specific owners. The market seller is not going to accept an offer from a buyer who wants a steep discount because that buyer has fears, uncertainty, and doubt, sometimes called FUD, because of the future coming of light rail. Instead, that seller will be approached by other buyers in the market who don't think there's a negative impact from the presence of light rail and are willing to pay full market value and the seller will sell to one of those buyers. In fact, they will sell to the one who's willing to pay the most, who sees the biggest benefit of this urban neighborhood, knowing that light rail is just a short walk away.
You're going to hear from a number of witnesses who are going to tell you about the agency's project, how it was constructed, and how it will operate. You're going to hear about the agency's efforts to reach out, to communicate with, and to partner with the neighborhood and these particular owners. Because ladies and gentlemen, this is a massive construction project. There is no doubt it had an impact on these owners. It was and is inconvenient, noisy, dusty, and there were rats. Oh yes, you. we expect you will hear about and probably see the rats. But ultimately you are going to hear that this neighborhood will actually be quieter once the project is built because the agency has built a permanent noise wall separating the light rail from the neighborhood. And most importantly, you are going to hear from the appraiser that the market would not recognize any reduction in value. In fact, these properties have increased in value partially as a direct result of the proximity of the light rail station. Now for all of the agency's witnesses, if you have questions about their testimony, we invite you to ask them, including the tough questions. All that we ask is that you do the same for the owners and their witnesses. For all of the witnesses' testimony, we ask that you listen for their experience in the subject matter that they are testifying to, listen for who put in the time and did the work, and listen for any inconsistencies or assumptions in their testimony and the facts, if any, that those are based on. And finally, consider whether those assumptions and opinions are supported by market evidence. At the end of trial, after you've had a chance to hear and weigh all of the testimony and evidence, we are confident that you will understand the valuation issues involved in this case and return a verdict awarding just compensation in the amount of $1,000 for each respondent. Thank you. Tara O'Hanlon, that was awesome. That was beautiful. Matt, is that how it went down at trial? Pretty much, that's how I wrote it for her. Wow. <laughs> I think she might take issue with that. She might take issue. Hey, that was fantastic. It was amazing. Hey, good to see you guys again. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking forward to recording this episode since we saw you last time to, to talk a little bit more about the issues. Now, I, I want to highlight a couple of things since you've set the table very well in an opening statement, Tara. Number one, this is a, a rail project, right? High-speed rail. And it's next to these subdivisions. Is that right? And you acquired property to construct something related to the high-speed rail within a subdivision, but the line itself is going next to what's left. Is that right? Well, kind of. Um, actually, the light rail is being constructed in the neighborhood on former home sites that the agency acquired in advance of this pending action or the action that, that Tara uh, just talked about. And so the issue was, uh, was this light rail project, did it meet the single family residential restriction, which it didn't, it's a high capacity transit system. So therefore the covenants had to be amended to allow for that particular use. Good. Okay. So, so you just set the table for my point is that you didn't actually, regarding the plaintiff landowners, or they wouldn't be the plaintiffs, but regarding the landowners that went to trial, you didn't actually take anything physical from any of them. You didn't Correct. cut off a corner of their property. 
you didn't even well, you didn't do anything. It's it's that there was a restrictive covenant, which is one of the sticks in the bundle of sticks when we're talking about property so, rights. Wait a minute. So the issue is it's there's not any sort of impact to the physical property. It's just some amended covenants restrict uh, covenants conditions and restrictions. Yeah. The respondents in this case, the owners, were claiming that that's a it's a valuable property right. They could restrict the types of uses in their neighborhood, and that this light rail was going to be a noisy, messy uh, project that would bring undesirables and other things that you would normally see with a high capacity transit system. Yeah, and I understand that this was all over the news out there. And, and there was press regarding the project and maybe even regarding some of the trials. And what was the, uh, what was the perspective of the message through the media? Well, um, you know, the council for the property owners had reached out to the local news agency and they started an investigative report and uh, that created some image issues, um, but they weren't necessarily accurate. And, and you know, there was a lot of misstatements and, and misunderstandings ultimately as to what the agency was doing. And, and ultimately, you know, that came through uh, based on the jury's verdict at the conclusion of the trial. So, so did the media, what happens out here all the time is, is we get a lot of bad media publicity on the front end and then it makes us look terrible and then we win the case and the media never revisits the case. <laughs> Sounds about right. Because <laughs> yeah. it's that not juicy, be, you know? Yeah, it's definitely not as sexy for sure. Uh, but, yeah, no, there was no, at least I'm not aware of any reporting, you know, of the of the, the ultimate uh, verdict of the jury. So yeah. it is what it is. So here, here's the here's the thing, uh, and I think this is very important to people in the right-of-way industry, all right, is you're not taking, you're not taking anything physical here. And when we get into things like condemnation mitigation and sometimes people are looking at a project at the outset, it's really important to identify impacts on all property owners. So in this case, who identified the need to pay just compensation? I could see some agencies coming through and saying, well, we're not taking any part of their property. We're not taking any easements. So pull out the bulldozers. Let's go. Well, and and there's actually a state split on the legal question of whether, uh, agencies have to acquire the right to amend or whether they can just go forward um, and not need to treat it as a property right. But the majority of states recognize that it is part of the bundle of sticks. And in advance of the agency recognizing that, there was a Washington case involving a different transportation agency that said Washington's going to follow the majority of states and this is a property right and the agency does need to address it. And we're talking about a restrictive covenant here. They said it's a property right. We're going to do the right thing and we're going to go out and we're going to condemn them. Well, yeah, and and that's what the agency should do and and did so in this situation. I mean, most of these agencies have either federal or some type of state funding and oversight and they need to ensure that they're acquiring and paying just compensation for any real property rights that are being acquired. So this could be one of those things that another agency may look at it and go, ah, we'll just hold our breath and see, like, we're not going to condemn. We'll just, we'll just see what happens. Does that happen? Well, I, and I, I know that a lot of our, your listeners are, uh, you know, 
know this better than I do, but under the, the URA or the Uniform Relocation Act, you know, there's a affirmative duty for an agency that knows it's taking a right to acquire that right. And you can't force the property owner to bring an inverse condemnation. Yeah, I know, I know. But it seems to me, and I have actually seen these these situations before, where particularly in restrictive covenant issues, uh, when, when we're dealing with, with restrictive covenants as opposed to taking physical property, where there may be a recognition from the agency that there's a right being impacted. And some would make a business decision. Like, are we going to poke the snake? And are we going to condemn? And are we going to have 28 different jury trials or however many landowners are in the subdivision? Or are we going to hold our breath and hope that an inverse condemnation case never comes? Well, that's a decision that every agency is going to make for itself. Um, this particular agency uh, took the, the more conservative and, and what I believe is the, the right course of action. Is that is that a legal decision or is that an ethical decision? It's probably both. Ooh. I think that there's a legal right of property that's being acquired and there's an ethical issue from the agency's perspective of whether or not they should pay for that in advance or wait for a property owner to come forward with their hands out saying you took something from me. Matt, you you referenced the the Ford Pinto situation. Would you speak to that again? Well, yeah, in the, in the Ford uh, Pinto case, the Ford manufacturing company designed and constructed a car where the fuel tank was located in an area when there was, you know, any crashes, it would become a ball of flame. Uh, and there was a lot of people that were hurt and Ford knew about it. And Ford had the opportunity to fix it by doing a recall. And they chose not to because the cost of the recall uh, would have been more than just paying out the claims from people being hurt. Uh, and ultimately they got stung by that because, uh, you know, the court's you know, protect that and to make sure that, that people are being compensated unfairly. So really what we're looking at here is, and this didn't happen in your case, but an agency might look at a situation like this and say, you know, it'll be cheaper to defend two or three inverse cases if they ever come than to poke the snake and have to prosecute 28 or 30 or more condemnations. And oh, it was, th it was 300 when we started. Whoa. <laughs> Yikes. So so you could have possibly, you were looking at possibly 300 condemnations, and I guess you had to pay just compensation on each one of those. We, we did, but, I, you know, the, the reality that there were only 28 holdout owners left represented by the same council when everybody else recognized that we've done the work, the appraisers have looked at it, and the reality is our, our prices of our houses are skyrocketing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, but, but there's a key point here um, that, that plays into this decision is you consolidated or you were able to consolidate and try at once 28 different claims from 28 different property owners as opposed to having to conduct 28 separate so jury it's, trials. It's all one jury trial for all 28 owners. Is that right? Correct. And, you know, for a judicial economy, that, that makes sense. And so, yeah, there was a concern. And I think that there's a lot of um, strategic decisions that are made by different lawyers that represent uh, agencies as whether you, you take one at a time or you, you lump them together. I mean, the facts are the same. The project is the same. 
the valuations are different and each property owner had its own separate appraisal done. And it was just the conclusion was that there was no marketable change uh, in value for any of these properties. In fact, the appraiser said that they were specially benefited and, and then each property at a minimum increased in value by 4%. Uh, and 4% doesn't sound like a lot, but these were million dollar homes. Uh, multi-million dollar homes and 4% is a significant amount. So even if there was some type of impact, the the special benefits would have wiped it all out. And let, let's clarify that. Um, you call them special benefits out there. In our code, we call it enhancement. And can you define what that means? It just means that, well, uh, there's a state rule and a federal rule. And under the federal rule, when looking at the value and the, its impacts, if the value goes up as a result of the project itself, that value increase can be offset both against the taking and any claim damages to the remainder property if it's a partial acquisition. Uh, under the state rule, you can offset those special benefit or enhancements only against any claims of damage, so not against the taking. And there's, there's other hybrid models out there in some of the jurisdictions that look at it a little bit both ways. In some instances, there's no offsets. In some instances, uh, you can offset it against the taking, but not against any uh, remainder damages. And, and so what rule does Washington follow? Uh, Washington follows the federal rule, which is you can offset special benefits against both the taking and any claim uh, diminished value. Wow, that's a good deal for you guys. That's a good deal for you guys. Hey, do you, let me ask you this. Uh, do you know what May 12th is? Oh boy, is this uh, more Seattle trivia? We're gonna completely. Oh, this is, you know what? This it's is more worse. more important it's than worse. Seattle trivia. This is the, like one of the greatest days of the year. They, like, have nobody, you taken the day off? They don't, know. They don't taken... know. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. No, actually, literally everybody on the planet they, cares. They, um, I, I'm, they don't even know what we're talking about. Okay, guys, I'm just gonna tell you, May 12th happens to be Billy Squire's birthday. Do you guys know who that is? Of course, they know who he is. I don't. I'm like. I can see them on the Zoom call. There's blank stares. I don't. Th I don't think. Billy so. Squire. Exactly. Singer. See. No. See. He knows exactly who <laughs> and, he is. And Tara, are you familiar with Billy Squire? Nope. Exactly. Okay. Well, what you know what we're gonna do? Oh God. We're gonna do a little Billy Squire trivia. <sighs> okay. And see sure. if you guys. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you the trivia question, and each of you answer to the best of your ability, and the one who comes closer. So the actual answer wins. What do they win? Well, I don't know, like a spam single or something. Okay, fair. All right. Okay, that sounds fair. Okay, question number one about Billy Squire. Are you ready? Hey, yes. don't are you, you listen? Yeah, are are you googling over there, Matt? I did. I already have. Oh it up my, on cheater! And okay. you know, what? I just saw Tara roll her eyes. By the way, at the Billy Squire <laughs> trivia. So let's see what happens. Okay, trivia question number one: What is Billy Squire's net worth? Twenty million. What? 15 million. What is it? From what? Like net worth from what? From writing a bunch of rock and roll hit songs. He makes hits every single day. He and Snoop Dogg. Like, he made hits like one day. He made like one hit. Well, he made more than that. And I will tell you, who said 20 million? Tara? Me. Okay. His actual, you're the closest, but his actual net worth is $40 million. From what? The man lives on Central Park, okay? Why do you know that? Uh has nothing to do with um, a raincoat and shades or anything. Oh nope. my gosh. Nope. And a camera. 
Okay, Billy Squire, question number two. How tall is Billy Squire? 5'9". Matt, what do you think? He's Googling it. He is Googling it. I just, no, I know he's seven years old uh, on May 12th, so. uh, 71. 71. Well, and he just happened to know correct. that he's he's googling and he's still losing. How do you feel about that? <laughs> he's googling and still losing. He's he's five ten. Okay, what'd you say, Tara? I said five nine. I took the under. Okay, first of all, Tara doesn't even know who he is, and she's whipping you on this. He's five foot six. He's five six. He's five six. Aw, um, I couldn't pick him out of a crowd. I'm going to be honest with you. Okay, last question, and there's uh, only one right answer to this. It's you either get it or you don't. How many Billy Squire albums do you own? Oh, gosh. Oh, Do I get to answer this? No. Oh. Zero. Yeah, zero. Correct, okay. correct. That's the right answer, guys. No, that's yeah. not the what? right answer. Oh. The only correct answer is all of them. Listen, um, guys, I'm going to apologize for my co-host, Dave. This will be the end of any Billy Squire content for this episode. Hey, I'm, I'm winning, and I don't even know who he is, so I'm, I'm good with it. Hey, come to San Antonio, and we'll listen to some Billy Squire and sip some We're bourbon. not talking about Billy Squire anymore today, okay? Okay. The Pendulum Land Podcast is very proud to include the law firm of Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn as one of its best supporters. In fact, this episode of the Pendulum Land Podcast was made possible by that law firm. Miller Nash is based in Seattle with offices in Portland, Long Beach, and Vancouver. Though its attorneys are diverse in their background and their fields of expertise, every one of them that I've come to know over the years has one thing in common. They're great lawyers, and they give great representation. Now, those of us in the right-of-way industry can tell the difference between an attorney that dabbles in eminent domain and right-of-way and one who masters the process. Miller Nash eminent domain attorneys don't dabble in right-of-way. They make it their objective to understand the industry, to understand the issues, and protect their clients' interests. Our guest, Matt Hansen today is the leader of their condemnation and real estate valuation team. You'll see Matt, you'll see Tara, and you'll see other Miller Nash attorneys at the ALICLE National Eminent Domain Conference. You'll see Matt and his partners at the International Right-of-Way Association's International Conference. And you'll see Miller Nash attorneys at right-of-way conferences and symposiums all over the place. If you have a right-of-way project in the Pacific Northwest and you need outstanding, experienced legal representation in the field, give Matt and give Tara and give Miller Nash a call. They're the real deal in our industry. If you need local counsel in their area, in their footprint, give them a call. Or, like me, you don't want to take a chance with your client's case in your first virtual trial. Consider associating Matt and Tara or one of their partners. Check them out at MillerNash.com. MillerNash.com. Okay, so back to your trial. Here's the thing. We're talking about condemning a restrictive covenant. We're talking about million-dollar homes. And ultimately, 28 went to trial. Is that what you told us? Yeah, there's 28. But originally, you started with 300 and settled out with most of them. Yeah, uh, under the covenants themselves, they could be amended. Uh, so long as 75% of the ownership agreed to the change. And so we went out and bought their rights, ultimately, uh, their approval rights to amend. And so as part of that negotiation process, we acquired the 75% that we needed in order to amend the covenants prior to trial starting. Okay, so you amended the covenants, but you still paid them just compensation? We did. But again, it was still for that minimum just compensation uh, number. It was still a $0 valuation. 
Okay, so you, your your evidence was going to be zero dollars of value, but what was the minimum that uh, you had to pay? Thousand dollars was the the minimum just compensation policy that the agency had. So regardless of the value of the taking, at a minimum, if there is a taking, they will pay a minimum of a thousand dollars. So these, even though your evidence was zero, these landowners who went to trial, what was their damage evidence? Like, what was the range that we're talking about? Well, as indicated in, in Tara's opening, it, it varied uh, based on proximity and who owned the property. And, and that was part of our theme. And it, it, it doesn't matter who owns the property. It's not about these particular owners. It's not about this agency. It's about the property. And how would that property transact in the market? And in terms of like, what was their actual testimony? It was really about how disruptive the construction was. But that wasn't the issue, right? I mean, they were, that's, is that? Yeah, why is that well, compensable? I mean, that's, that's what we told the jury. That's what Matt told the jury in closing. Um, you know, we, we acknowledge it's impactful, but the reality is the market doesn't recognize that you would take a rental deduction the market doesn't recognize any permanent damage. There's no market damage. In fact, we were able to get evidence from the owners who also had the ability to testify uh, to impacts that during construction, rents were actually going up for those that were renting out their properties. There was no evidence of a fair market rental deduction as a result of the project itself. And we, we covered this in the prior, I'm sorry, Kristen, we covered this in the prior uh, discussion with you all, but I want to reemphasize it. What was the total aggregate evidence of damage from all 28 homeowners in this trial? $5.6 million Jeez. total and, and was there compared a... to our 28,000. <laughs> There's a little bit of a discrepancy there, just a slight. This is a teensy weensy bit. And, and was there any sort of attorney's fee claimed? Yes, there would have been exposure of potentially in the range of $2 million. Uh, this case has been going on for five years. And I, I and can't, had a number of appeals already. And I can't let that go. We, we covered it last time, but you're talking about $7.5 million of agency money was on the line, and you're going to try this case over Zoom. <laughs> in, still incomprehensible to me. No pressure. No. So we, we've talked about the varied uh, damage, uh, estimates of damage or evidence of damage. So did each, did, did you put on an appraiser to testify to every single of the 28 parcels? Yes, but no. We showed the work. We were able to show like tables of, of the analysis prepared by the appraiser. And we took, you know, maybe a couple and went through them uh, in detail to kind of show how the process worked, how the appraiser approached the the particular valuation issues, and then he just gave his conclusions to the other properties. Otherwise, we would have been there for what was already a five to six week trial would have been months. You would still be there right now. <laughs> yeah. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah, but still, I mean, I, 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 I could see the landowner's attorney saying, nope, you, you did this, guys, so you're going to take us through, and I'm, we're going to cross-examine your appraisers on every single property did they did they cross-examine them on every single one did they let it go did what the how'd they handle that well they had the opportunity to um, cross-examine the conclusions on each and every uh, property and I think they attempted to and they had their own appraiser as well that was able to put on evidence for for the, the 
property owners and you know they just didn't hit the mark and it just wasn't as compelling as the evidence that we were able to present before we move on last time we had you guys on we brought up something that i mean we assumed as people who live in seattle you would be very well versed on and that is pearl jam grunge, grunge music in general really um and you guys let us down i'm not gonna lie you had no knowledge of pearl jam you didn't know our trivia questions <laughs> And that's okay. We're going to let that one go. But we, 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 we came up with something that has a little more of a broad appeal for people from Seattle. And we're hoping you're familiar with a little movie called Sleepless in Seattle. Have you heard of it? Yes. Have you seen the movie? Yes. 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 Okay. Dave, All we right. found something that they can talk about from Seattle. This All right. is great. Great. Their Billy Squire knowledge. Well, Tara's Billy Squire knowledge was close, but... Yeah. She does. She literally doesn't know who that is, and we're not talking about Billy Squire. Okay. Anymore, okay. okay. God. Jeez. Okay. Go on, get on with your bit. <laughs> it's not a bit. It's a discussion about a, one of the greatest movies ever. So, but you guys have seen it years ago. Yeah. Are you okay. fa are you a fan? Do you like it? Did you like the movie? Wait. What's happening here? Meh. What? <laughs> what? I, I mean, um, yeah, like it's. I it, thought it was. It's a, it's a nice rom com. It's a nice. It's a nice rom com. Matt, what were you about to say? Not that. What? What were you gonna say, Matt? I just say it wasn't a bad movie. Okay, yeah, not a bad all right. movie. All right, so here's. I some, don't own it, Matt. Everybody owns Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, don't like lie, literally Matt, everybody. Don't lie. Okay. Do you want to do some Sleepless you, in Seattle trivia? You still own movies? Uh, I have like a big VHS collection. Do you not? Yeah, I, I have some, beta. I've got I have beta. some Blu-rays, some laser discs, laser discs. I, I still have a couple DVDs floating around. I guess. I have some DVDs. H however, I do not have a DVD player. My kids will be like, let's watch this DVD. And I'm like, we, they're like, I don't know how to do that. So, yeah, good point. All right. So, y'all want a trivia question from Sleepless in Seattle? Let's have it. Well, this is kind of oh. one of those trivia questions that's a little depressing. Okay. Yeah. It's Here a it lot is. depressing. How old was Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle? 29. Oh, okay. Matt? Uh, 24. Oh my god. Oh my. Jeez, okay. Guys, he was 36, but I still was like, I, you know, I he thought looks he was like, like a, a, a grown up. Yeah, he looks like a little boy. And then Meg Ryan, how do how old do you think she was? Matt's going to say like 17 with this person. 27. Okay. okay. All right. This is not going well. Just read read it off, Kristen. All right. Meg Ryan was 31. Rosie O'Donnell in Sleepless in Seattle was 30. Okay? I love Rosie O'Donnell. What about Walter? What about Walter? And then Bill Pullman was the old man. He was the creepy old man. He was 39. Super old man. Yeah, 39. That movie's so charming. I love it so much. And there's so many fun little nuances and funny scenes. What's the scene with the, with? is it Rob Reiner? Yeah, he's he's with Rob Reiner down at the downtown like, Seattle they're thing. They're talking about like getting back out on the market. Yeah, and he's and like Tom Cruise says, uh, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks says, so how's my butt look? He says, not bad. Uh, but is it cute, though? I don't know. Are we grading on a curve? I love that scene. And that's right after they talk about tiramisu. And he's like, what is that? Somebody's going to want me to do that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I haven't done that since college. It's the best. Okay. Now, well, I'm right. glad. Hey, at least they have heard of Sleepless in Seattle. I'm proud of you guys. I'm really proud of you guys. Have you all heard of Starbucks? 
Yes. I guess we're trying too many cases. We got to uh, oh. get, get, get up on our uh, arts and entertainment. A you know what? More. You carry on. You guys just keep kicking butt in those opening it, statements. If we're you good. come, if you come back, we'll talk about Nirvana and Alice in Chains. If you no, if back. they come, they're not going to come back. We have not been nice to them today. I know. Okay. Listen, let's talk about a few of the logistics in your trial, and we covered some of this. Uh, did you have any? This was all by Zoom, which guys still completely foreign to me never done it not sure I ever want to do it did you have any technical issues during the course of the jury trial like people losing connectivity or anything like that I'm not a cat come to mind no <laughs> yes in, I was gonna say no, did any was, did any cat show that up that was the, the highlight of my year was that video it was so funny no I would say it went off seamlessly but that would be a lie I mean ultimately this was new it was new for everybody and we, we kind of limped through it and the court was pretty patient with the attorneys and with uh, the technology because the court was struggling as well. But, you know, for the most part it worked and it, it, it seemed like a fair process. Uh, the jury was able to get the information. The jury gave pretty good feedback uh, when we got to interview them afterwards. And, you know, there was hot mics are probably the worst uh, culprit out there. Oh boy. A, I, I was gonna say other than that one time that you forgot to mute. Yeah, yeah we went to a break and we thought we were done when we were just finished up i think i was cross-examining maybe their expert witness and i was seeking to keep a particular piece of evidence out and the judge let it in and we just think that the judge got it wrong uh -oh. uh, so oh, much boy. so that when we went to recess we thought that we went on mute and we didn't and we got up and said what the you know judge so what the so. heck is what you said right what the <laughs> that's heck exactly what that's exactly how we said it yes i figured and then we engaged in the dialogue for the next i don't know 45 ah. seconds and then we heard the clerk come back on the computer and say counsel uh, you're not on mute <laughs> that is nightmare Whoops. inducing that's terrible so okay so at any given moment so no nobody's actually in the courtroom i mean is the is anybody in the courtroom is the judge there the judge was the judge the clerk the bailiff Okay, so just like two or three people. So how many people are on this Zoom call? It, it, it got up to near 100 at one point because, oh you know, gosh. our our client was wanting to have people sign on. It was a great training opportunity for the junior lawyers, the junior appraisers, and then there were, you know, 30 parties. So all of the owners were on and then the 12 jurors. The local bar would come in and, and watch. I mean, it's one thing if you have to drive down to the courthouse and you still have to work, but you can always kick on a Zoom trial on one screen and work on the other and kind of see how the see all the tricks to our trade. Well, that's what I was going to ask, and I hadn't thought about this before when we talked about it, is there's a public's right to um, view and know about a jury trial, right? So yep. was it? A, could I have signed on? Uh, you could have, um, or you could have went into the courthouse. The courthouse was still open. Uh, the courtroom was open. It would have been social distancing, and they probably wouldn't have had a screen. Oh. Uh, but, you know, the court was making that a, as an available option to the public. And, oh. and also, you, you told us last time that <laughs> this wasn't the case where you wore face masks, was it? No. no. That was the case right before this. And the other one, you had, you had clear face masks, which, listeners, Tara actually modeled for us one of them which was totally cool. I've never seen anything like that. I haven't that. either. Still have never seen one since. Don't know where to get one. I think Tara could hook you up. I think she probably I can, could. I can send you. I, I will bring one to San Antonio. 
I Please. got a couple used ones I can send you. Wait, hold on. Does this mean you're coming to San Antonio? Are you coming for conference? I think that's the plan. Yes. That'll be this great. This is great news. We'll go to the Alamo. This will be great. So uh, here's one problem that jumped into my mind is is in every eminent domain trial, um, at least where I am, there's a jury view. The jury goes and tours the property so that they can witness and get a feel for the impact of the taking. And how did you handle that in this situation? Oh, yeah. So in, in Washington, the jury view is um, identified in the statute as an option, but it's not a right. But in this particular, and typically we try to always do a jury view. And in this particular case, we really wanted to do a jury view because the owners who own property in the back of the um, subdivision, they really couldn't see or hear the construction or what was going on. Um, the topography really was steep in this neighborhood and there were a lot of winding streets. So we really wanted it and we tried to, you know, we made arrangements for a socially distanced, you know, usually we do one bus, we were going to have multiple buses and keep it socially distanced. But right as we were starting trial, the judge, the state was shutting down again. And so the judge elected to not do it. But instead, opposing counsel brought in over our objection, the use of Google Street View with one of our witnesses. And we decided to make the Google Street View, even though we objected to it, our replacement jury view. How'd you do that? So we, we had our appraiser pretty much take control of the uh, the screen and drive us around to different locations within the subdivision and stop and look around and can you see the project from, from that particular location? I mean, it, you're not gonna hear anything on, on Street View, but a lot of the issues also had to do with just you know, tearing up their neighborhood with construction vehicles and machinery and everything. And, and it just wasn't the case. Uh, and so um, it was really just an opportunity to get in there and look at it and see there was other projects going on in the neighborhood as well. There was a big park project being constructed next door, which created its own noise and vibration and dust and uh, construction activity that was not related to our project. And it was a project by the local city, by the city of Bellevue. And so they were conflating a lot of the impacts from construction because the, in their view, it was all the same project. It was all the same construction. And so being able to demonstrate what that park looked like in the before and the after and the timing for when that construction occurred was helpful to the jury. What do you call the picture of the park totally torn up, dusty, uh, like the, the moonscape, the, the moonscape. park moonscape? Once they allowed that Google Earth view or the street view, you guys just took it and ran with it is what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the court admitted it over our objection, so it's an admitted evidence, so we used it. So. I'm just going to say this. From one lawyer to another, brilliant, brilliant tactic. Y'all did amazing. And you took it and used it to your advantage and to your client's advantage. That was brilliant. I still don't understand how it came in. Because is there evidence as to when the pictures or video for Google Street View was taken? How I, I can't imagine... I can't imagine under what theory the court let that in. I really can't. But kudos to you guys for turning it to your advantage. They ran with it. They sure did. So before we run out of time and before we wrap up, I'm thinking we have to do another round of Sleepless in Seattle trivia. Yes. For our friends out in Seattle. They're in Seattle. Are you guys sleepless? Did you sleep last night? Are you rested in uh, Seattle? Pretty well rested. Borderline. 
Borderline. That's borderline right. Tara's like, that's because I'm doing all your work, Matt. All right. right. Yeah, I, I, I gave an opening this morning. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, you did. Okay. Are you ready? What ready. is the name of the babysitter of Jonah in Sleepless in Seattle? No idea. Y- you mean you haven't watched this movie in the last three days? What? Don't you keep it on a loop out there? No. Um, I have no idea. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I watched it last night because I feel like I needed to get up to speed. <laughs> nice, Kristen. <laughs> right. Nice. Her name was Clarice. Is that wait? Is that right? Yeah, it's Clarice. That's right. that's right. Same as like the the Silence of the Lambs Silence lady. Of the Lambs, so that's yeah. cool. Okay, number two. Do you know who Annie is? Do you even know who that is? That's Meg Ryan's character. Okay, Annie. Where did Annie live? Did she live in A, Chicago, B, New York City, or C? Baltimore, New York, what? New York City. What guys? No. No. Oh, it was the the, the tower, right? So it was Chicago. What? What is happening? What? <laughs> They're never going to come back on our show. It was Baltimore, but really good try. Now, Matt, you might be thinking of the end of the the end of the show, uh, the end of the movie where they go and and Meg Ryan, Annie meets Sam. Tom Hanks on the top of the Empire State Building and it's the big moment and then they grab hands and they look into each other's eyes and this is so romantic and that the Empire State Building that is in New York City so you're, you're on the right track here's your final trivia question on what date did Annie and Sam meet on the top of the Empire State Building I'll give you a hint it's the same date that the same event happened in the movie An Affair to Remember and also it wasn't Christmas is it May 12th? Oh! Yes, Billy Squire's birthday. <laughs> no, Matt. No, and don't, no, don't play into this Billy Squire nonsense. <laughs> He's encouraging me. It's not Christmas. It's also not Flag Day. Not Valentine's Day. Day. Yes. Oh, Tara wins. You, you have, you know what? Is this, that solidifies her victory, right? Tara, you have yeah. now earned yeah. yourself a spam single. I'm going to, I'm going to mail it to you. Okay. We're sending you a Sounds spam good. single. We are. We are. So before we wrap up, fascinating trial for a number of reasons. Number one, it was on Zoom. Number two, geez, the topic is fascinating and something that we in the right-of-way industry have a tendency to sometimes overlook or maybe shrug off that could have big implications. What were the implications and lessons learned of this trial? Any thoughts on that? You know, if, if you have a solid case and you have good witnesses and you're on the right side of the evidence... I don't think it matters what the platform is. I mean, the facts shake it out. I think the jurors take their role seriously and they, they listen to the evidence and really, you know, it's preparation, making sure that witnesses are ready to go, uh, that exhibits are properly identified and, and utilized in a way that, that makes sense. So what happened? What was the verdict? Uh, $28,000, $1,000 each to each property owner. So. So basically what you're saying, it was a crushing, massive victory for the agency. The jury came back in a very short amount of time. Like how long did they deliberate? Less than three hours total. (laughs) For 28 (laughs) property owners. And this, how how long did the whole process take? Litigation went on for five to six years, but the trial was, what, about five weeks? Almost six weeks. A five, is this, uh, as the layperson, a five-week trial and they deliberate for less than three hours, is that? That's incredible. That doesn't happen, right? And they had to go through 28 parcels. They must have just bought your theory, right? They must have. Bought is kind of a They agreed with our witnesses' (laughs) evidence (laughs) that there was no damage and 
that the agency's minimum offer policy of $1,000 is what was just compensation owed to these owners. Yeah, so they, they agreed with your theory, and, that, and they, or maybe even more so, they did not agree with the landowner there attorney's theories. And that, that, seems, that seems pretty fair. Uh, last question, just because I'm a trial lawyer, what did they do with the jury verdict forms? You know, usually we have a form the jury has to fill out, and they fill in what the just compensation is and what the damages, if oh. anything, are. Well, how'd they do that with 28 parcels? Was it just going to be one grand number and everybody split up the money, or how was it going to no. work? No. Well, yeah, the unit rule kind of concept, no. Um, there was a one verdict form um, that had 28 different uh, verdicts tied to each particular property owner. So they had to write in $1,000 28 times. That's unusual, I'm, though, I'm, right? It's Yeah, it's, it's a little unusual that you would have multiple property owners or multiple properties in a condemnation action, but it's not unheard of to have, you know, a verdict that might break out the award uh, because at least in Washington, even though you may have multiple interests and they can be tried together, the owners can ask for a uh, separate ruling as to their particular share of the total just compensation. I was just going to add as a logistical matter, I'm pretty sure that the uh, four uh, that the four person just emailed that verdict form back to the court. Oh. oh, yeah. In such a short period of time. That's amazing. Any, any parting words about this? Do you have any more of these on the horizon? You know, I, I don't know. I know that the, uh, the American Bar Association has taken the topic on and there's other jurisdictions that are doing it now. And in fact, Tara um, spoke on a panel recently and, and learned some, some stuff that I think will be helpful going forward as these things continue. I think that this remote aspect is here to stay, maybe not in its entirety, but as we, we mentioned in the, the earlier program, you know, Wadir and all these other uh, aspects of a trial, if they can be done remotely, why not? Uh, does it make sense to, to haul people in to, to sit in a room for half a day uh, for, for a civil trial such as this? All right. You heard it here on the Pendulum Land Podcast. Thanks for joining us. What about Walter?